Welcome to episode 21 of The World and Everything You Need to Know. My name is Eric. This episode builds on and around the content that was covered in episode 20, Language, History, and Time. There is a little overlap of material that is included to give context. In fact, all of the previous episode could be seamlessly spliced in about halfway through this podcast. The entirety of the content covered probably should have been divided into three episodes instead of two, but there was not a way to do it that would allow each individual part to function on its own without a lot of repetition. If there are any questions or comments about this podcast or any of the previous episodes, there are two ways to contact the program. They are TWAEYNTK at gmail.com and TWAEYNTK on Twitter. In 1994, a place known as the Chavot Cave was discovered in southern France. Part of what makes this cave notable is a landslide had completely sealed it off from the outside world. What this inadvertently did was keep the interior of the cave at a relatively constant temperature and humidity. The natural processes of erosion from sunlight and windstorms was prevented almost completely, leaving the contents within the cave untouched by time. The walls of the cave are covered with paintings which are estimated through carbon dating to be from about 30,000 BCE or before current era. These are some of the oldest deliberate creative expressions that have been found. Painting is a form of communication, but it is quite different in its specificity when compared to written language. Inherent in the medium is a more subjective interpretation of what the paintings represent. What were our ancestors intending to communicate to their peers, to their children, to their grandchildren, and ultimately to the offspring from which we came? Without the artist telling us directly, there is no real way to know. The drawings include representations of animals similar to horses, bulls, lions, birds, and bears. There are also panoramic scenes of stick-like men engaged in combat with some of the animals and some of the men. Another notable feature of the cave is its geological formation. The cave is over 100 meters deep, or 100 yards, or 300 feet. It is a very long cave that formed over a very long period of time. Keeping in mind there were no modern conveniences, including chimneys to vent smoke, it is clear that the very back of the cave is where the first occupants lived. As the cave grew deeper due to landslides and other tectonic shifting, the multiple generations of occupants had to move their fire pit forward to the mouth of the cave a number of times throughout the centuries that passed meaning the oldest artifacts known to man have been found around the first fire pit located at the very back of the cave. Represented in the paintings at the front of the cave, there are clear differences between the human forms and the animal forms, but much deeper inside there are older drawings that represent humanoid-like creatures alongside beast-like creatures with distinctly human characteristics. These include some drawings of half-bull-like creatures mating with human-looking females. Is this a record of what they saw and the events that actually took place? 
Is this how a primordial half-human species procreated, ultimately resulting in some offspring that became more and more human as genetic variations that were beneficial to survival occurred? Or are these simply a record of their own mythology more ancient than any written story that is known? The earliest fragments of written language that have been found are from around 3000 BCE. A majority of these markings are interpreted as an elaborate type of accounting. How much grain did an individual contribute to a community, and therefore, what is their worth? Within these accounting notes are found the wealth and worth of a king named Gilgamesh, who lived in Samaria around 2700 BCE. In other documents from around the same time period, there is a very lengthy story about this king named Gilgamesh. Were there other stories written around the same time period? Yes, but none like this one in either length or complexity. There may have been other stories about other kings and deities dating even further back, but time and the elements have degraded, eroded, and destroyed a vast majority of the records that have been found. What archaeologists can find today are the writings that were reproduced the most, the ones that were written and rewritten over and over again by many different hands. Like it or not, popular scriptures are the ones most likely to survive through the epochs of time. Parallel to this, it is important to remember there were very few people who knew how to read and write. It was a luxury, sometimes thought of as a skill that should only be taught and shared between the most powerful and wealthy individuals. Those were the hands that decided what should be recorded and how it would be done. From those deliberate decisions made by a very small and self-selected segment of the entire population at that time, we find the oldest story known to man, the Epic of Gilgamesh. From what has been recovered and deciphered, it is known that there are at least 12 parts to the tale, but none of the writings have been found in their entirety. The oldest copies of this story date back about 5,000 years and are written in what is known as cuneiform script, which is the foundation of all written Western language. The previous podcast, entitled Language History and Time, covered a few of the details regarding the evolution of the written word, one of the early precursors to modern written communication is referred to as Linear B, which refers to the way in which the script is read. Linear B was primarily used for accounting, but within these records are a few of the first times Greek gods and goddesses like Athena, Zeus, Aphrodite, and Poseidon are mentioned by name. In the Minoan runes of Gnosis, there is a maze-like structure and floor paintings depicting men battling half-men, half-bull-like creatures, similar to the Greek mythological story of Theseus and the Minotaur, and on the painted walls of the Chavot Cave mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Getting back on track, a brief summary of the Epic of Gilgamesh follows. Keep in mind, I am condensing about 100 pages into a couple of minutes. Gilgamesh was born part deity and part man. He was very adept and athletic. He spent most of his time brawling with all of the men in his kingdom and having sex with all of the women. He did not feel what he was doing was wrong, and even though it bothered the people of his kingdom, they believed it was his right as well, given his lineage. 
However, the entirety of the population agreed that the king's need for attention and competition was more than they could handle. Eventually, the gods intervened. They created a creature from clay named Enkidu, who possessed strength and ability equal to that of Gilgamesh. He was human, but he was covered with beast-like hair. After he was formed from clay and turned into flesh, he spent his time drinking from streams and foraging with deer and other animals. He was as similar to the wildlife in both nature and smell that his presence raised no fear or concern from wild creatures. One day, a young farm boy became alarmed when he saw Enkidu drinking at a river with the animals. He informed his father, and his father told him to report directly to Gilgamesh because he was the wisest and most able man of the land. Gilgamesh ordered a priestess of Ishtar, the god of love and war, to tame the wild man with her womanly ways. After seven days of sex, according to the writings, Enkidu was no longer a wild creature. He lost his bodily hair, learned to talk, and overall transformed into what is considered a civil human being. Enkidu is then told by the people of the land about the problems they have with King Gilgamesh. Enkidu confronts the king, and the two of them engage in wrestling and other physical competition. After many days of competing with each other, Enkidu finally concedes, bowing before Gilgamesh in defeat. However, Gilgamesh raises Enkidu up and declares him his equal. They become best friends, and the entire kingdom is happy because Gilgamesh appears to be content and no longer bothers the men or the women as he had in the past. After a while, Gilgamesh decided he wanted to accomplish a task that was so great it would be known by all and he would always be remembered. He talked it over with Enkidu, and they set out to defeat the most terrifying creature known to man, a guardian of the forest who had snakes protruding from his face and was known to kill all men who dared enter the woods. Unfortunately for the guardian of the forest, Gilgamesh and Enkidu eliminated him with very little trouble. The goddess Ishtar was impressed by the feat to such a degree that she asked Gilgamesh to marry her. He declined her request because she was known to be a bit of a black widow. That did not matter to her, she was deeply insulted by his reply. To punish him, she sent down the Bull of Heaven to destroy Gilgamesh, even though doing so would likely destroy the land and kill everyone within miles of the battle. As it turned out, she underestimated Gilgamesh and Enkidu, who as a team efficiently killed the Bull of Heaven, sparing all of the lives of the innocent and without destroying any of the surrounding land. That feat infuriated the goddess. As a result, she decided to punish Gilgamesh by causing his best friend Enkidu to die from a terrible disease. Gilgamesh refused to believe his friend had died. He mourned at the side of Enkidu, praying that he would rise from his sleep. It was not until Gilgamesh witnessed a maggot crawl from the nose of the corpse that he finally accepted that Enkidu was truly dead. Completely devastated by the event, Gilgamesh wanders off into the wilderness. Over time, his hair grows long, he becomes very dirty, and his clothes turn into tattered rags. One day, a fearful innkeeper saw a wild man wandering around. 
She was so terrified by the sight that she barricaded herself inside her tavern. This wild man was Gilgamesh, and eventually he convinced her that he was, in fact, the king. He explained what had happened and why he was so upset. The woman advised Gilgamesh to visit an old man who, thousands of years ago, had survived a flood that had covered the entire surface of the earth for a number of days. When he finds him, the old man reveals to Gilgamesh a possibility that might allow Gilgamesh to live forever or perhaps to reverse what had happened to his friend. Gilgamesh undertakes an incredible journey and a physical trial in which he recovered a rare fruit that was said to reverse the effects of aging and maybe even reverse the effects of death. On his journey back to his kingdom, one night when he was sleeping, a snake found the fruit and ate it. Gilgamesh woke up realizing what had happened, but it was too late. He was left to watch the snake shed its old skin before it slithered away. Eventually, Gilgamesh returned home with the epiphany that there was no way for him or anybody to escape death. However, he remained distraught until he was given advice from the priestess who had civilized Enkidu. She tells him that the best thing Gilgamesh can do with the time he has left is to live his life well, enjoy every day, and treat people nicely, because life is special, and it is also very short and unpredictable. That is the essence of the Epic of Gilgamesh. The actual text contains a lot more detail, elaboration, more characters, and other events as well. There are also many small fragments that cannot be matched with any parts of the story that are known, which indicates there is much more to the tale than has been found. It is abundantly clear that the Epic of Gilgamesh contains many plot points and storylines that have been copied and repurposed by other stories that were written hundreds and thousands of years later. There are many parallels and strikingly similar events that occur in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, which is also known as the Hebrew Bible. From an archaeological point of view, there is no doubt that in fact all of the books of the Bible have origins from many different places. Does this mean the stories of the Bible are not true? There is no arguing against whatever people want to believe, because beliefs are what people wish them to be. It is undeniable that many events mentioned in the Bible occurred in other literature first, most of the times in different locations and with characters known by different names. Hammurabi's Code is frequently cited as a predecessor to the Ten Commandments, but it is easy to cite many similar laws found in different cultures around the same time period and from thousands of years before. The reason these laws are so commonly found is they are the rudimentary underpinnings of civilization. Don't kill your neighbor. Don't steal your neighbor's things. Don't have sex with your neighbor's wife. Take care of your parents. Treat people the way you would like to be treated. There is no magic or mysticism here, only common sense. What is interesting and notable about the Bible is it contains rules regarding the preservation and proliferation of the writings that are collected within it. Specifically, no words or passages are to be removed from the Bible or the life of the individual who removed them will be taken. 
And if any words or passages are added, all of the plagues of the Bible will affect the individual who added the scripture. If this is to be believed, it obviously did not bode well for the individuals who interpreted the Aramaic scripture and transformed it into modern translations of the book. Another notable detail about Judaism is that as a culture, they recognize the importance of teaching their followers how to read and write. How did they educate their peoples and stress the importance of knowing how to read and write? They put together a collection of books used to teach and used to practice both reading and writing. This is known as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Keep in mind, there weren't that many books at the time because the majority of the population was poor and didn't have the wealth or opportunity for an education. The collection they put together covered a wide variety of interests and entertainment, including songs, poetry, stories, and life lessons that would not only benefit the individual, but also gives a greater chance for the survival of the community. Biblia, from where we get words like bibliography and Bible, literally means book, and a book was a collection of writings. The Bible was effectively an entire library of the most popular stories, songs, and poems from that time period. It was a tool designed to educate people and to promote literacy. Was it meant to be taken as a whole? Not in its original form. Before the pieces of it were collected together, the stories and poems and songs came from many different places, many different eras, and many different cultures. As a species, we humans share a history dating back more than 30,000 years. The elements of those very first tales told by hunters around ancient campfires persist to the present day. How do archaeologists determine which writings are fact and which ones are not? It is a matter of collecting a tremendous amount of information from all of the cultures who lived in that time period. Through that unwieldy collection of materials, they have been able to confirm events that actually happened and the names of people who actually lived. Claims that come from only one culture, only one source, and only one book are much more likely to be fiction. Our modern era provides an opportunity like never before to learn about anything and everything that has ever been recorded by man up to this point in time. It does not matter if an individual wishes to learn the unbiased facts of history or understand the true forces that drive politics today. More information from more sources, from more cultures, and from more perspectives helps galvanize a beacon of intelligence that is capable of finding the truth. Amid the wealth of knowledge available today, it is important that we as individuals do not self-select ourselves into pockets of ignorance.